Welcome to Starting Nowhere. I'm your host, Brandon. Today, my guest is Michael Zapata. Michael and I will discuss what 2020 has been like for him as a nurse, how he got started in DJing and what he thinks of today's DJs. Lastly, we'll discuss what inspired him to make a documentary about Ben DeSoto and what his plans for the future are. Please enjoy today's episode. All right. Thank you very much for joining me, sir. Today on Starting Nowhere, we have Mr. Michael Zapata, a.k.a. Witness, a.k.a. Mr. Steal Your Girl, all the other good uh, acronyms that he goes by. Don't tell Manira <laughs> I said that. She'll kill me. But um, how you doing, boss? I'm good, man. Good to see you. Uh, you too, man. How's been this been for you, dude? We ain't seen each other since, I don't know, when was the last time we even ran into each other? I think it was on a Zoom meeting for one of uh, Nina and Melvin's children's birthday. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think right? Andre had a birthday or something like that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think that was earlier this year. It's but been interesting. That don't count, though. I meant like in no. person. Oh, like in really person, really person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, probably before you guys moved to Miami. Yeah, because I think we were just talking about like right before everything shut down, we were talking about having you come down to Miami and visit. Yeah, so probably sometime early last year, maybe. Gosh. Dude, that's wild. That's crazy, man. Yeah. That's way too long. Way too like, long. Because <laughs> when we were living in the same city, obviously we saw each other much more frequently and everything. But, uh, True. So but before we get into all that, though, why don't you go ahead and tell people who you are, man? Tell them a little about yourself. Uh, let me see. My name is uh, Michael Zapata. Some people know me as Witness. Um, I've been in Florida the last 10 years. Um, never, never thought, you know, I'd be out in this, this area, but, um, life kind of takes you in different directions. Originally from, uh, Texas born in McAllen, Texas border town between Texas and Mexico, uh, relocated to Houston when I was about four or five years old. Um, and then finished out, you know, grade school out in Houston, out in the burbs, Sugarland, um, moved to the city once I graduated high school in 93. Um, and uh, let me see, stayed in Houston until about 2008, relocated to New York, uh, did some work out there, and then uh, transplanted to Florida 2010. So I've been here ever since, and it's uh, it's like my new home. So I'm feeling it. Yeah, man, you've got a, got a little mileage on you. You moved around from H-Town <laughs> uh, to New York City and now down to Tampa, which is, yeah. you did it backwards, though, I feel like. We're not even backwards. You did it all out of order. I feel like most I I people did. would do Tampa to Houston, then finally, you know, graduate to New York City and yeah. chill out there. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, sometimes life takes you unexpected territories and, and you just make the best of it, adapt. I mean, now, obviously, it worked out okay for you because that's where you met your lovely wife, you know, and that's sure. how you settled down and everything like that. So we can't be mad at that. <laughs> nah, absolutely. Yeah, that would have never happened if I never came to Florida. Um, recently married, uh, we're celebrating our two year anniversary, November 11th. Um, so yeah, life's been real life's life's been good, you know, and I hope it stays this way, even though it's been a, been an odd, weird year. Yeah, man. But the, the wedding was beautiful too. I'm never going to forget watching that chicken kamikaze dive out of the tree. That was the wildest thing. So for those, for those who are listening and obviously everybody who wasn't at this wedding, uh, it was held in like a little park and in Ybor City. And in Ybor City, everybody knows who uh, has been to Tampa. They have wild chickens that just kind of mm -hmm. run around. Nobody knows who owns them. Nobody knows who brought them there, but they're just running around Ybor City. Right. And 
in the midst of your wedding. I don't. Uh, were you guys doing the vows? I can't remember what part it was. It might have been before yeah. you began. I, uh, no, but, I think uh, it was during the time of the uh, the ceremony. Uh, my her father spoke first, and then my yeah. father. And I, I can't recall which one of our fathers were in the middle of a speech, but wasn't it right above the tree? Like yeah. everybody kind of looked up. There was like some commotion going on. Yeah. So, so again, it, you have this, everybody sitting in chairs uh, underneath this kind of tree, uh, just, I don't know how old this tree is, but a pretty large tree. And on a branch up there, there's a chicken just been chilling on that branch a whole time. And then just halfway through the ceremony, for whatever reason, decides it doesn't want to be there anymore. And it jumps. It just straight up jumps. And that's the first time I've ever seen a chicken kind of float. You know, I mean, what? chickens can't really like fly, but like it yeah. opened up its wings and kind of just softened its landing. And it was the wildest thing. And after that, I was like, man, it just stole all the show at your wedding. It's like, that's mad disrespectful. <laughs> you know, I, I honestly don't even remember that moment. I remember the commotion going on in the tree, but you guys probably had a, a different view of what took yeah. place than, than what I saw. I mean, I feel like that's a very political answer. You try not to get in trouble. He's like, nah, my eyes were all on my wife. All I'm on my her. wife to be. <laughs> they were. They were. I was uh I was mesmerized. I couldn't oh, stop looking. Man. Yeah, it was good. It was a good day. This is about to be her anniversary present. Listen to this. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so but all right, man. So let me let me ask you something. Like, you are a nurse. Yeah. How has this not not from the the social media aspect, not from the, the misinformation and all those different types of things aspect, but how has this year been for you and your experience directly with like COVID and what it's done to uh, you and the healthcare profession? Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was pretty much a shit show, you know, um, a lot of, you know, of course the hospitals are following guidelines, guidelines from the CDC that are giving them directions. Um, a lot of things aren't clear as far as like policies and procedures and the way to handle um, wearing PPE with gowns, the whole testing. So it was, it was a mad, madhouse, you know, like, um, but at the end of the day, I kind of knew it was going to be that way. I anticipated it being that way. And all I could really do is just focus on keeping myself, um, safe, you know, um, recycling mask, um, the N95 mask, you know, keeping that, um, you know, they were having us, leave them after every shift where they would take them down to sterile processing and cleaning them. But I mean, the masks were pretty much like gold, you know, you needed to have them because people were ransacking them in the, you know, as far as like commercial stores trying to buy stuff. Um, but, uh, but like anything with upper management, you know, they were just trying to find a solution. The priority definitely was to keep the nurses and the staff safe um, while we try to, you know, treat patients. Um, but it's been a, it's been a wild bizarre year you know and, and just seeing the cases come in there was like the the calm before the storm um because i was in a uh, in an ltac hospital long-term acute care so you know a lot of excuse me a lot of patients that were coming from uh facilities nursing homes um assisted living facilities um you know there's there's such a close proximity at those facilities that you know they they spread it like wildfire and then of course, once they came to the hospital, got diagnosed, and then came to us, it was going to be like a long time before they could even be released before they start showing negatives or have at least two tests that, that are negative before they could be shipped out. So it was just kind of interesting seeing the dynamics and the management of it. Um, but I mean, I think Florida's done pretty pretty well as far as like following instructions and our case, the cases are pretty much balanced. Um, but 
at the end of the day, it was just my, you know, my wife and myself just keeping ourselves safe, you know, and, and doing the right thing at work as far as like keeping ourselves protected when we come home, you know, gown, take our, our gear off outside, make sure we don't bring things inside, limiting our interactions with family. Um, you know, it was tough. Uh, I'm sure it's been tough for everybody not getting to physically see your family and, you know, move into things like this with Zoom. I haven't seen my, my family all year. I usually go back to Houston at least once or twice a year. So um, it's been hard. It's been hard on, I'm sure, on everybody. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have it worse than myself and my wife, but um, we're just thankful that 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 we're safe and healthy and, and just try to do our service. Yeah, man. Well, first of all, thank you for being on the front line of that battle. I know that without people like yourself, uh, whatever the death tolls are, they would be a lot worse. You know what I'm saying? If we didn't have sure. people out like yourself out there putting your own health and safety and that of your loved ones in uh, in danger, then we wouldn't even be able to claim the survival race we have now. It'd be much worse. So thank you for all that. Um, Absolutely. I, I can say that for me, it's been actually relatively easy because I'm a loner and I don't like to travel and my family hates me. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> but gotcha. uh, so let me let me ask you, man, because again, I wasn't there at the hospitals or anything like that. So I heard on the news about the shortage of N95 masks and I heard about how a lot of commercial companies are going through it. So Take me through some of the worst times that you were going through there where you were trying to get a mask and you weren't sure if you were able to, going, excuse me, going to be able to get a new mask for your shift or something like that. Because, again, I heard rumors that some of the uh, the healthcare workers were having to try to wear masks that are supposed to be single use like five times. And you, I heard you mention yeah. recycle. And if I understand correctly, those are supposed to be single use items usually. True, true. Yeah. Um, you know, it finally got to a point where um, during that calm before we started getting hit with, with the COVID patients. Um, I specifically remember one day, one of the staff members going around collecting all of the, uh, the surgical mask. And I'm like, uh Oh, like, here it comes. Like they're about to start like putting these away. So we don't have access to them. Or, you know, maybe there was like certain staff members like taking a box at home so they could have one, you know, for reserve. But uh, I, I knew it was getting real. Once I saw that moment, I was like, okay, like, they're going to start limiting because, you know, people were kind of on panic mode, what they were hearing in the news. And then, of course, um, you know, we're getting internal emails from the company that um, that PPE, PPE supplies are low. Um, you know, like like you said, they were certain masks are supposed to be for single use only. But then now they're making exceptions like, OK, like use it unless it's getting wet or um, it's damaged, then, you know, definitely. Mm -hmm toss it and get something new if there is a new one available but um but luckily like we didn't really in my and on the floor that i was on we didn't really uh get to that point where it was running that that slim i think uh most of the staff did a good job on on uh you know trying to trying to use them until they couldn't anymore but um but i mean we're fully gowned you know like n95 yeah. then a surgical mask then the um the shield either a shield mm -hmm. or the glasses that that cover um, I've been, I've been rocking a hairnet or not a hairnet, but a hair, uh, cap, you know, just, yeah, yeah. just to kind of protect myself and, um, you know, double, double glove. Um, but yeah, luckily it didn't get to that point where like people were fighting over it, um, at my floor. So I think, uh, the company that I'm with did a good job on, um, you know, making strategic, uh, moves to make sure that we were adequately supplied. It sounds like, and uh, forgive me if I'm insinuating anything you didn't say there, but responding to the CDC guidelines during the at the height of it, 
was probably pretty difficult just because they were changing their guidelines, it seems, so frequently. Sure. And how, how do you feel that not necessarily your company, but how was it responding to those frequent changes and going in that day and not knowing now what you had to do compared to what you had to do yesterday? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. It was just it was just a, a big gumbo, like just a big mess. You know, one day, one week it's going this way. We're, we're, we're following protocol one way and then things change or even like with medication, like they, uh, all the information coming from the CDC, they were making decisions based off that. Oh, this works. No, it doesn't work now. Now we're going to start prescribing this. Um, mm -hmm. But, but, but you got to understand like at the facility that I'm at, like they've already been through the ringer, the worst part. Yeah. So I'll, the, the kind of patient, uh, population that we see, um, it's already after they've been stabilized, like at, mm -hmm. at another hospital. And then they come okay. to us just, just for continued care. Like if, if a lot of them had, um, respiratory failure where they're on vents, um, they come to us in a more stable, uh, you know, situation where we're going to work on getting their lungs, you know, back in order, um, getting them off the weans, um, essentially like exercising the lungs. So, um, that kind of, that's kind of what separated us from like the frontline frontline, like mm -hmm. emergency yeah. room where they're first exposed to everything. Um, or even like the EMTs paramedics that actually go to the house to pick up something. You, you have no idea like what you're walking into. So your best option is just to pretend like everybody's got some, something, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that's kind of more like, you know, how, how the floor that, that I was on, um, functioned. And then I mean, I recently got a new position, so there's still a lot of floors that are specifically for COVID patients, but um, surprisingly, like the numbers have gone down. So, um, so I mean, that that kind of makes you feel good that that the cases aren't just through the roof, you know. And again, without giving any personal details, I don't want to try to get you in trouble with HIPAA. You know, yeah, we'll get you in sure. trouble with other stuff later. But uh, what's the recovery process for the patients you've seen? What's it been like? Because I've again, I've heard horror stories about it being really hard. Uh, I've heard it not being that bad. It's just like, how have you seen it compared to other things they may have had to try to recover from? So, like a lot of the patients, like I was saying, that that come to uh, the facility that I was at, the uh, the long term acute care. Um, they've already, they've already been through the ringer, but, um, a lot of times if they have, you know, comorbidities, they have other issues like, uh, diabetes or, or cardiac issues that kind of gives them, you know, that puts them in a situation they're at a higher risk of, of not recovering as quick as yeah. somebody that's more healthy. So, um, a lot of people like bounce back. I saw a lot of people, you know, recover and, you know, of course had the shortness of breath. Um, but luckily, you know, the other systems weren't affected, but then you got people that are just like completely out of it. They got multi-system organ failures. Um, they're, you know, they're on dialysis, their lungs aren't bouncing back. They got, um, you know, fibrosis in their lungs. So it's almost, once you get to that point, like it's, it's super hard to recover. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting just kind of seeing, you know, how the hospital was handling as far as, um, visitors being able to come by and see their loved ones and it was pretty much like the only way that you could come see your loved one in the hospital is if you come in and you decide all right we're going to pull the plug i mean it sounds horrible and yeah. it, it kind of is you know because like you're you're only getting information over the phone about these patients when you know family members are calling hey can you give me an update on my mom or my dad and you know telling that is is one thing but actually seeing like the condition that they're in um, either they, they kind of come to a conclusion, they see that they're not progressing or they, 
they might just be in denial and be like, no, we got to keep trying. We got to keep trying. We got to do everything. So, I mean, that's been interesting, just the whole uh, grieving process of families. Um, and, you know, I try to always put myself in their shoes of what they're going through. And, um, and I understand giving it a shot for somebody to make it. But sometimes, you know, after months of trying to get somebody fully recovered and, and the outcome is poor, you know, it's either you, you let them go or you send them out of state to, to a vent farm eventually where they're going to have no quality of life the rest of their life, you know, on a, mm. on a breathing machine. So that's, you know, that's, that's really opened me up a lot. Um, seeing that, you know, like that's why, um, it's so important to, uh, to have like your advanced directives, living wills, um, mm -hmm. you know, power of attorney all in order. It's, uh, it's not a, it's not an easy conversation for everybody to have, but, um, but it's reality, you know, and, um, and I, I just, I, I won't forget just the patients that are there that are telling me one thing that they're done, they want to give up, they're ready to die. And then I'm like, you have to express that same, you know, what you're telling me, you have to express that to your loved one. And they're like, no, they don't want to, yeah, they don't want to let them down because you, you got to think about like how, uh, you know, after, if, if, you, if you're sick, you're going to fight for yourself because you're like, I'm going to get through this mentally, physically, you're trying to, to get out of whatever situation you're in. But, you know, the longer that you're in the hospital, psychologically, you might start to give up. Um, and then you got your family members that are like looking down on you telling, yo, you got to fight, you got to fight, you got to get through this. But, um, but you might be done fighting already. You're like, man, I don't want to fight. Like, let me go. Like, this is, this is not good. I mean, it's almost like, like living in hell. And especially like if you're intubated or if you have a trach and you can't talk, I mean, I, I can only imagine how frustrated I would be that. I can't tell you what I'm feeling or that I'm done with this or like, it's, it's almost, it's like a nightmare pretty much. It seems like so, but, uh, but I mean, I never thought about, you know, I, I became a nurse at, at 40. So like, you know, like my, my, you know, post high school years and, and being a DJ and partying and living the nightlife and drinking, um, I never thought once of my health, you know, like I wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking about, you know, how serious, you know, um, you know, your health is long-term, you know, and how things can change in the blink of an eye. And luckily, yeah. you know, like nothing serious or tragic happened to me, um, during that time. But, um, you know, I just, I'm, I'm just thankful, grateful every day that I at least have, you know, good quality of health right now. Yeah. So do me a favor, because I, yeah. I think I know, but I, I just want to hear it from your voice. Uh, what is a living will and how does it come into effect with how you were talking about? Um, I mean, it's not like my expertise as far as that, but I mean, it's basically nah, you got to have a law degree now, too. You got to be everything right now. <laughs> it's a legal document, you know, that um, you, I, th I think you have to go, you know, you have to get it notarized or you go through an attorney that that pretty much just states like what you want. Um, mm -hmm. and you can be very specific. Um, the, the, the living will and the advanced directives, they're, they're somewhat parallel, but, um, I mean, I just know that it's a document that pretty much just states like what you want. Like, I don't want to live if I'm brain dead. I don't want to be a vegetable. I don't want, if I mm -hmm. have to be on a breathing machine, I don't want that. Like, like, let me go. Like, um, so you can be very specific on like what you want, you know, and obviously like, you know, you want to give it a shot, but you know, like for one, ex one example, you could be like, if three doctors say that I have poor prognosis, the cardiologist, mm -hmm. the pulmonologist and nephrologist are all saying that, 
you're shit. You, you ain't gonna you ain't gonna come out of this. Then just like let me go, pull the plug. Um, but I mean, there's plenty Some, of information uh, online that you can yeah, uh, yeah. fill out and make those documents, you know, available for you and your family. Yeah, no joke. I'm pretty sure they have those type of starter documents on LegalZoom, and then they'll put you in touch with a real uh, a real attorney to get them finished out and everything like that. So I definitely totally. support everybody. Go ahead and get those done. Because like you said, you never know when that's going to happen. The, yeah. One of the morbid things about being in the military, they make you do those type of things before you deploy. Like that's on oh, your yeah. checklist before you're allowed to leave. You have to do a will. You have to do those type of things because wow. I mean, that's the reality of that type yeah. of stuff. You know what I mean? I didn't know so, that. Uh, yeah. 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 I had to do one before. I did. And it was funny because, you know, uh, I deployed to a non-dangerous country and okay. they still maybe do it because it's just part of that checklist. You know what I mean? Right. So it just, it's very morbid and, uh, it just makes you think about those type of things. So yeah, yeah, when other people you're talking about have having those hard conversations, I've already had to do that uh, with my with my mother and that type of stuff, just in case because yeah. you know it was all part of that process. But uh, I would hope that if I'm ever on my deathbed somewhere, that I can uh, muster up the strength uh, just to tell people what I want. Mostly because I'd like to do it out of spite. You know what I'm saying? Like just leave them, make them feel guilty, so I can sit there and tell them it's like this is because of you. I don't want to fight anymore. <laughs> Get the hell out of my face! But, yeah. <laughs> so, so you said something there. I want to. I want to talk about too, man, because we never really got to uh, sit down and talk about it. Uh, you were a DJ. How how did you get into that? Because I know you've got that passion for music, particularly H Town music. Uh, yeah. But how did you become a DJ, and what was that lifestyle like? So, like, I didn't become like an official, I guess, a real real DJ till uh, I'm gonna say ninety four, ninety five. Um, that's when I finally got, you know, my first set of turntables, but growing up, um, you know, I had, I had a turntable, I had a record collection, I had cassettes, I had CDs, um, you know, and sometimes I'd be asked to, to kind of pretend DJ a party with like one, you know, double cassette player, one CD player, and maybe a turntable, not necessarily like mixing, but more just, I guess, like a selector, like playing music for the party. So, but I wouldn't really classify that as a DJ, but it was definitely like a foundation of just kind of understanding, you know, manage, working a crowd, you know, playing the right tunes to keep people uh, moving and having a good time. But, um, but 95, um, you know, after high school, I, like I said, I graduated in 93. Um, I tried college for a little bit, but I, I really wasn't serious. I was just throwing money away. So I decided to spend some money on turntables. Um, I played with a, I played with a band, um, kind of like pre uh, Lincoln Park kind of vibe, like a like a rock band where they they wanted me to DJ and add scratches. Um, mm -hmm. So I think just like that that introduction, leaving the suburbs after high school, um, moving to Houston, you know, to the inner city, meeting a lot of like minded people, and um, just hungry and um, and you know growing and building new relationships, making new friends that were into the same thing, and uh, and it just kind of, you know, took off, you know, opportunities opened up, took advantage just at the right place at the right time, um, where I ended up learning, you know, the ins and outs of um, relationships with the with the clubs or the bars, um, negotiating payouts, um, you know, promoting, hanging out with um, graphic designer, they were, you know, early, early Photoshop and, um, you know, getting flyers made and, um, you know, working out deals with, with people that were going to come out to uh, pass out flyers or go to the mall or record shops or whatever, pass them out. I'll let you get in, you know, free to the night. Um, so I think a combination of DJing and um, learning the, 
the backside of, of hosting an event, like I guess you'd call it like event planning, um, mm. just, um, just, just absorbed it all, you know? Um, and it, um, you know, things just started growing more met, um, was meeting, uh, you know, label mates, like, like reps that they would have street reps that would come mm. to the party, um, and, you know, give, give records to the DJs to try to break new albums. Um, and then, uh, you know, I ended up getting a job, uh, as a, as a rep with universal records later on, um, started doing internet radio, like 2000, um, you know, early MP3, I think it was, uh, God, I can't remember the real player. I think we were using oh, that. Yeah, and, yeah. uh, what's the other one? Winamp. Um, oh, Winamp was the stuff though. Yeah. There was a, there was a downtown in Houston, Montrose, um, God, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but it was like one of the first internet radio stations. Actually, before that, it was a pirate radio station. Mm-hmm. Um, some some buddies of mine that were DJs as well um, got a slot to do pirate radio, so they would invite me to come play there. Um, later on, I was getting invited to come DJ at uh, the community radio station in Houston, KPFT, um, building relationships, then eventually got my own radio show in 2014, um, playing underground hip hop. And, uh, and also DJing at the same time, hosting my own parties, um, you know, working for the label, making contacts, getting free records. So it just, um, just kind of built that database up with, um, with different brands, learning how to, uh, to tie in sponsorships, you know, like, um, Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever kind of budget that they had to kind of toss at the party in exchange for like logo placement or, or giving out product, um, it was a good period. I mean, met a lot of great people, got to travel, play throughout Texas. Um, it was fun. Good times, you know. So while working in that world, who was the person that you met that you found the most interesting or or to say it another way, it, either the most interesting or somebody who you thought was like so crazy famous that you couldn't believe that you was running into them while you were doing your thing? Um, as far as like somebody local or like uh, somebody like that was already like established. Hey, that that's your call, man. You could you could tell me you met somebody before they became somebody, or you met somebody when they was somebody. Whatever works for you. Um, well, on the on the Houston level, um, so when I finished when I finished high school and was trying to do the the college thing, um, there was a publication, um, a newspaper publication there in Houston called Urban Beat, and mm-hmm. uh, and I reached out to the point of contact there, and I was like, hey, are you guys looking for writers? Um, you know, and he was like, yeah. So he. Uh, the first assignment that he that he put me on was this graffiti showcase um, on the uh, like the east side of, of Houston. So um, and I didn't really know much about graffiti. I mean, I knew just a little that I may have saw like on MTV raps or in videos or stuff like that. But um, but it was there that I re- that I connected with uh, with a bunch of graffiti artists from Houston and DJs as well. One specifically is Gonzo Two Four Seven. Um, who, um, who is like the go-to man. He's pretty much the ambassador of Houston right now with, um, graffiti and the art movement and bringing it to light where it's been more, uh, more acceptable, like in, uh, you know, in art, um, throughout the city. Um, and, and then later on, you know, he brought a lot of artists down, down to Houston. Um, Shepard Ferry was a big one that comes to mind, like early in the game before, you know, before the internet, before it got to like what we know of different artists now. So um, I would definitely say Gonzo um, was a big inspiration and he's still doing a lot of stuff there in Houston. 
and a um, good relationship um, that I can that, that I can reach out to and, and ask for a favor at any time. Um, but as far as like artists, big time artists, um, probably like Souls of Mischief um, when when we were promoting and doing a and doing our weekly on on Thursday nights, the venue saw that, you know, we were bringing in a decent turnout, um, you know, every week that when they had a chance to kind of reroute touring, uh, touring shows through Houston, um, they could pretty much tie it in with our night. So um, definitely Souls of Mischief. I mean, that was a highlight of meeting all of them. Um, and then sharing the bill um, with a lot of um, dope artists that I looked up to, De La Soul, Onyx, yeah. Dos Effects, um, the whole like DJ scratch movement that that started to erupt in the mid '90s. Um, got to meet uh, Mixmaster Mike. That was that was a big highlight. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, they were all kind of striving for the same thing. You know, just um, just putting their music out there, and and there was that common bond of of the love of hip hop and and the art of DJing. So, um, you know, it was, it was interesting when you'd meet people that were, were still down to earth, you know? Yeah, man. That, that's dope though. Like, especially De La Soul and Onyx back in those days when they were really yeah. popping, that would have been dope to meet. Uh, I, I, like I said, I still rock with Onyx pretty heavy, uh, from their earlier stuff, man, just cause I, I like that upbeat music, that aggressive stuff, you know, and for sure, you know, Fre uh, Fredo Starr and, uh, man, Sticky Fingers and all those dudes, they would that's all they do. That's yeah. all, that's the only note they got. They have no chill. You know what I'm yeah, saying? So, rowdy. Uh, yeah, man. I love that stuff. But So how do you feel about these uh, electronic DJs they got now, man, where they're basically pushing play on the iPod when they do a, a crowd? You know what I'm saying? Like, again, I respect the art of making the music, but once you've done that, it doesn't necessarily translate to live for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, when you got somebody, like, I went and saw Run the Jewels a couple of times and uh, what's their DJ Trackstar? They got DJ Trackstar up there, and he's actually spinning, he's scratching, he's doing like he's actually doing stuff. And uh, Russell Peters had a joke, man, at the beginning of the show. It's not a joke; it's actually just a fact. Um, he has a DJ because Russell Peters is huge into the old school hip hop scene and likes DJs and that type of stuff too. And so he brings one with him when he does a lot of live shows. And he's shouting him out, and the dude like was doing his thing, or whatever. He's like, "You see how he couldn't wave because he's fucking busy." <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about because. When you got electronic DJs, I respect the music of making art. I respect what Skrillex and, uh, you know, uh, Dead Mouse and all those dudes do. But I just don't, the live part of it for me doesn't translate because you're not really doing much when you're actually there. You may adjust some levels or something like that, maybe add one little sample in. But right. uh, I don't really think you're doing what some of the hip hop DJs, especially, you know, Jam Master J and all those dudes who are doing, you know what I'm saying? Like, so what do, what do you, yeah. you feel that same way or do you respect it for their live performance as well? I mean... I was I was kind of there in that transition of, of DJing where, um, you know, I started off with, a, you know, records where, you know, you had to bring a bag of records mm -hmm. if you're going to do like an hour guest set um, yeah. at a night or if you're doing a whole party by yourself, you'd need at least four or five crates. You're, you're limited to, you know, only the collection that you had. But um, as things were evolving and computers and Serato came into the mix, I was there for that transition where, you know, um, it was very convenient that um, you no longer had to, you know, lug around all this, all these vinyl, all this vinyl to a party. Um, you know, you essentially have your whole collection in a hard drive, external hard drive, or you're just going to plug in a flash drive and, and, uh, and play. But, um, but I think with Serato, you know, um, a lot of DJs that already had that foundation of, of vinyl were able to transition and take advantage of, uh, 
of you know essentially being able to to work more tricks have instant doubles um it was a uh, it was just you know you could still you could still apply like all the tricks and stuff that you would with vinyl it was mm-hmm. just you could do more um than what you were limited to with actually physically changing the record um you know having cue points set um so i mean it was an interesting time but also um that's when you had a lot of like people that all of a sudden wanted a dj um yeah. because they had the accessibility of you know two ipods or they were an ipod dj and mm. they weren't necessarily mixing um they're basically just pushing play and pause and there's no like seamless mix of both tracks um so it was pretty whack you know at the time you know like seeing seeing those kind of djs but I had more respect for them if they actually taught themselves how to mix like along, you know, along their journey, which some of them did, but a lot of them, you know, just kind of fell out, you know, like they weren't in it, um, 100. Um, but, um, but it's definitely come a long way. I mean, I was, uh, I was in the DMC, which was a DJ battle. They had, they had the, uh, the, uh, preliminaries in Houston in 1999. And, um, and it was just a different time. I mean, having, having your records in order, marking them so you can needle drop. Um, I mean, you were, you were basically just doing a live mix of transitions and overdubs and scratches and this and that. Like it was, it was definitely like more, uh, more, more manual, like physically manual versus like Mm -hmm. manually, like pushing cue points and and get into somewhere quicker um, where you're just like, wow, how did he transition that fast, you know, versus like kind of tracking things out. Um, But you know, there, there's so many, uh, there's so many different avenues with DJs, depending on like what kind of, you know, DJing that you, that you want to do. I think over time, like with our attention span and, and technology, um, you know, I mean, they even did it with, with vinyl, like somebody like Kid Capri, where he's just like fast mixing. It's like one verse and out, um, or, you know, a half a verse and out. It's like, so it's like you're dropping song after song. It's like, okay, wow, this is a this is a banger, this is a banger, and then you, you feel it for a little bit, and next thing you know, it's like into another one. So it's like constantly like shifting like the energy versus just like letting like the whole song play out, like a three minute song, like three yeah. verses. Like the attention span just went down like real quick, where uh, where you basically had a like speed mix kind of transition quicker with uh with songs that had lyrics, but um, or even like going back to like breaks and and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of songs that were sampled, you would quick mix those also because you know people don't want to hear the whole thing; they just want to hear the hot part and the hot transition and then be out be out of it. But with other genres like you know house, techno, uh, jungle, or like current EDM now, like it's a, it's a different feel where like you know songs can be played out for like two minutes because the songs already have the transitions and the build ups and the claps and then the high climax and people lose their shit and then like they're ready for the next song so um i mean it's definitely changed you know but um but i respect it you know like i i never wanted to be like the ogs that you know that i remember kind of telling me like oh you don't know about this song like that's that old school like you don't know about that (laughs) and i'm like well yeah i don't know about it but i want to know about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh that just kind of resonated with me where i was like you know what like i'm not gonna be like that to like the generation under me, like yeah. if they ask me, like, I'm not going to shame them. Like, I may not be a fan of what they're, you know, feeling or what's currently out, but I mean, that's kind of what's out now. And that's what, you know, they're kind of based on their life and, and growing up hearing. So, I mean, I respect that. 
Um, so I just, you know, I just reminded myself, like, I wouldn't be like that to like the next generation. I try to be open minded and, and respect like, um, uh, what they're doing. No. And I, like I said, I feel you, uh, I, my only drawback, uh, excuse me, my only hesitation to say things like that is about their live shows. Uh, again, the music, the music is dope sometimes, you know, I mean, I'll listen to some of my car, especially when they do collabs, you know what yeah. I mean? But there's two, there's a few different pieces that get uh, bother me about that. And again, it's the live shows, which again, is just allowing the people to, to party and everything like that. But if that's the case, then why I got to pay so much for this dude to be here? <laughs> yeah. I could have gotten the same experience without him here. You know what I mean? For the most right. part. And then right. second to that is when they do like what, uh, uh, what's his name? Is it Diplo? I don't remember yeah. which one it was, but they did with Aloe Black, that uh, that song, uh, Making My Way wow. Into the Darkness and all that stuff. Okay. And, and all they did basically was take the Aloe Black song and slightly sped it up and then added uh, a very, he had done these horns and all that type of stuff before and just put it on an Aloe Black song. Yeah. So now, on the one hand, it's cool because you're introducing the world to Aloe Black, who's a dope artist. Right. But on the other hand, you're getting credit for something that you barely did. It's his song that you just sped up a little bit. That's basically right. all you did. You right. know what I'm saying? And so, like, those are the type of things that I, I get a little bit uh, turned off by the music by. But to to uh, be fair, that's not so different from what Kanye did. That's not so different from what – uh, was it Just Blaze that was doing that, too, a little bit? I don't remember. But yeah. it was, like, some of the other hip-hop uh, producers and things like that that were doing as well. They were inter- blending those things together. I just yeah. don't like it whenever you straight up just speed up some my song or add some horns. It to 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 be fair, again, ASAP Rocky, uh, Wild for the Night, when he did that with Skrillex, right. that's a song that Skrillex has already done, and he just basically put ASAP over it. So you didn't really reproduce something. You just combined two, uh, two different genres and just you reuse the sample you've already used. So, Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's remixes for just about every song, you know, like no yeah. matter, like, I mean, an original, an original track, there's, there's so many remixers out there that are going to take it and flip it and, you know, hope that it's the next big thing. The whole like SoundCloud Bandcamp um, generation, um, you know, the accessibility with, um, with software um, on computers to make remixes. I mean, it's, it's gotten so user-friendly that, you know, you can, you can become an overnight, overnight sensation um, with, with what you make at home. It's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I feel you like with the, with the, with the DJs, um, I mean, they're they're playing their songs, they're mixing. I mean, there's still a science behind it with like controlling mm-hmm. the crowd, being a selector, playing the right music, um, keeping the energy going. Um, but you know, I guess it just depends, like you know, what you're into, um, what version that you that you care about the song, you know, the right time and place to to play the song. Yeah, I feel you. Like I said, and. I- I get it, and I sound a little bit like a hater, and I probably nah, a little nah, bit I, am. <laughs> but I, get what I you're think, saying. like I said, I think the major thing is it's taking it from a, a live art form more to a set list uh, where there's not necessarily that air of having to be there. You know what I mean? Like, go and I see an artist perform, they may add a different tune to it. They may have mm-hmm. a different way they flow through everything. There's like some real live feeling to it. And I just feel like with electric, uh, electronic rather, sorry, uh, right now, there's not necessarily that same vibe. And again, that, but it, I, it makes people happy. So I'm not going to be too mad about it. I'm just talking yeah. about the art of it and everything. And if I felt like if I go see, like I said, Jam Master J, you know, rest in peace, if I were to see him live, that's a real experience. The dude's out there working, you know, oh, what yeah. mean? getting the sweat in. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So, no, absolutely. But, I agree. 100. So 
put me on to somebody right now that you're listening to that uh, maybe everybody's not really familiar with. Because you've done that a couple times. Have you sent me some uh, some H-Town artists that I really hadn't listened to before and everything? Um, recently, um, the, the the Budos band, um, they're like kind of affiliated with um, the late uh, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Um, they're kind of like more soul funk, a um, lot of horns, but really, uh, really groovy, you know, drums. Um, I guess, I mean, I've always kind of been a fan of soul and funk and instrumental, but a lot of like bands that are like currently putting stuff out. I mean, it, it just sounds, uh, it sounds outdated. Like it, it could have been from like the sixties or the seventies, a lot of like, uh, Afro Cuban kind of influence in it. Um, so that's one new album I've been jamming, um, the Budos band, um, other new stuff, um, it could be new to me. It don't have to be new, new. You know what I mean? It could have come out in the 80s as long as I ain't heard it. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, man, you know, I'm really kind of all over the place. Um, you know, like uh, Eddie Van Halen just recently passed. So I went back yeah. and, and started revisiting um, a lot of their albums. Um, I had that 1984 cassette. It has like a little baby angel on the cover smoking a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I came home from school and my grandma had it in the trash can. I was like, what? <laughs> Why you throw my cassette away? She's like, that's so sacrilegious. Like, Angel smoking a cigarette. I'm like, damn, Grandma. Why you do that to me? <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm kind of all over the place with music, man. Um, man, I went to I went to the barbershop yesterday, and my uh, my uh, stylist is into uh, like I don't even know what kind of heavy metal you call it, but I mean, I was just listening to it, and I was kind of grooving to it, and I was like, man, this is kind of jamming some band called currents. Um, and I was just kind of fascinated by the programming of the music. Cause it sounds like, you know, like a live drummer, like playing. And I'm like, is this live drums? He's like, no, they have like software now that basically emulates, um, you know, live drums to kind of basically mm -hmm. trick the listener. Um, so I was just kind of fascinated with that. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of all over the place, man. Oldies, um, rock, soul, funk, I'm with you, man. For whatever reason, I don't know what happened, but recently I started getting into Nirvana again, which yeah. is funny because I've never been a big Nirvana fan. I always yeah. felt like they were kind of overrated, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but to be fair, my favorite band of all time is Sublime, and that's another group that I think a lot of people feel yeah. like is overrated too because they had such a, a short period of time where they were actually out doing their thing, and you don't know if they could uh, sustain that. But uh, sure, but sure. yeah, so I go from like Nirvana, and then, uh, and then I started messing with Pop Smoke. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like it's just I'm with you on being all over the place. It doesn't really matter. It's just whatever vibe you're into at that moment, what you want to listen to. But uh, For sure. you know who dropped an album recently that I, I only listened to like one or two songs. I need to get back into it because uh, I had to drive somewhere the other day and I wanted to get some good car music. But Paul Wall dropped an album, man. Oh yeah. Um, God, my, my buddy does all of his, uh, his like, uh, graphics design. And I actually saw that on Spotify. I haven't given it a listen yet, but it's pretty, how is it? Did you listen to it from beginning to end? No, no, no. Yeah. Like I said, I just had only listened to like one or two songs, but it was good. Okay. I mean, it's Paul Wall. It's Paul Wall music. If you like Paul Wall, you're going to like it, but it's, I don't know. The beats are a little bit more modern. They're not as, uh, you know, slowed as they used to be on his old stuff or whatever, but it's still dope. It's still that uh, that Texas style music, which I like, man. Yeah, I have to check that out. Um, yeah, I was, you know, take it back to Texas, listen to some of, you know, that stuff. Uh, Paul Paul puts out, you know, God, maybe one or two albums out a year. Um, I feel like I'm going back listening. He had one with uh, with Static Selector that he did, that was really good. Yeah. 
And I was like, oh, okay. Like, you know, like it's, it's interesting seeing Paul kind of branch out than just being in that, that tunnel of, you know, only like straight Houston. So he's, he's definitely, uh, you know, branches out. Yeah, man. Uh, I love all that stuff though. Like I remember one of the first times I heard screwed up music, uh, was in basic training right after you like finish out everything you finish, uh, they give you your stuff back. Okay. And one of the dudes who uh, I was in, it was in my uh, basic training flight. He uh, was from, he might've been from Houston. He was from somewhere in Texas. I don't remember exactly where. And he was like, man, I've been telling you about this music. Like this is what you got to listen to. And I was like, what the hell is this? Because again, I'm from Ohio. So I'd never heard screwed music before. And it wasn't yeah. really popping on the radio or anything like that back when I was 05. And so he just put it and then it was just a dude rapping. Like they had it way slowed down and everything right, like that. Right. And like, I didn't even know how to react. And then like a year later, of course, it, I think uh, is when it got big, you know, like 05, 06. I can't remember when Screwed Up, uh, when Screwed Music first started really hitting the, uh, the mainstream airwaves. But it's that type of vibe, man. Those type of things are where I'll never get tired of listening to other people's music. You know what I'm saying? You never know what somebody's going to introduce you to because sure. you're just not prepared for it, especially for people who introduce you to something you're not expecting. You know what I mean? Because we stereotype people for what we think their music might be. And yeah. then they bring you something. You're like, yo, what is this? It's like, I would right. not have thought that's what you were about to show me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Just the different regional music. Um, I've, I've always been interested. Like anytime, you know, um, I hear artists, the first thing, I don't know why don't ask me is I just want to know where they're from. Yeah. Um, Cause I think that has a lot to do with kind of understanding, um, you know, the environment they're around, the kind of, you know, what they're known for in the city, um, the history of the city. I don't know. I'm, that's just like my first go-to. It's like, where's this artist from? Yeah, man. I, I'm, I'm with you on that too, especially because you you can kind of figure out, or excuse me, guess um, their influences. And then you, so you're like, yeah. oh, this dude sounds like he might be from the Midwest. He might be from the West Coast, whatever it is, you know, or the band right. in general. Uh, and then you go and you look them up. You're like, yo, what? Especially me for being from Ohio. I feel like a lot of people, when I look them up, they are from Ohio. Like mm-hmm. it's a crazy amount of famous people for whatever reason from Ohio, you know, sure. especially when it comes to bands and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I get you. Cause I do that same thing. It, it, wanting to know where they're from and see if you can't go into a little bit more of their background. And that's one of the things that I think is unique about DJing, about hip hop, about graffiti even too, is really the link to the music and to the, the city and place you come from and how it influenced your art. I, I'm not saying that's not true for, you know, uh, country or, or, heavy metal or any of that type of stuff but it just feels like for those other uh art forms it just is really really linked to where they come from and so i think it's always helps you bring you into the music a little bit more so now you're not just seeing their words through what they're how they're saying it and maybe even a music video you're seeing it through all right where are they from and like what does that connect to right yeah absolutely yeah like yeah. tech nine and kc mo man like nobody to talk about kansas city missouri but then tech nine you know he's yeah. been rocking for a minute and he's always talking about it. you're like oh i want to go visit i want to see what this city's about <laughs> yeah I mean, I think like when you and I first met too, Cleveland, I don't, I think, I want to say we talked about Bone Thugs because I, I think that's yeah, probably man. the first thing that people think of when they, when they think of Cleveland. Um, but yeah, I mean, just regional, regional music, like where it comes from. Um, I don't know. I just dig it, you know? Yeah, I, I'm with you, man. But again, I think that comes from people who seek a deeper connection to the music other than just vibing. And right. that, that only happens for me every once in a while. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I was just talking to Gazelle the other day about it, like Sublime being from Long Beach. You know what I'm saying? And she was like, well, yeah, when Sublime was coming out, nobody in California was really rocking with them. Nobody really cared about them. Yeah. You know I mean? They were all talking about Nirvana and stuff. And I'm like, what? That's crazy to me because all they do is shout out LVC all the time. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes 
you know, certain bands, they don't get, uh, I guess they don't get the following that they want locally and they kind of have to branch out. And then once a buzz is created outside of their, their hometown, then the hometown kind of wants to jump on it. Like, oh yeah, I remember them when they were playing for five people or mm. whatever. And then they kind of jump on the bandwagon. But I think that's just kind of the risk, you know, of being a musician. Either people are going to hate or they're going to like it. Well, I mean, just being a celebrity in general too, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you got all these dudes, especially now in this day and age where you have people who are doing YouTube, podcasts, whatever it is, and people are like, oh, what is this dude doing that? He corny. He Nobody wants to hear him. And then they break a little bit. You know, I knew him back in high school. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, man. totally. That's a trip. So is your DJing and you being connected to the world, is that how you got involved with the Ben DeSoto project? Um. So like I was saying, like when – when I first attempted uh, college right out of high school, I was in the, they called it uh, broadcast, broadcast technology. It was basically a communications class, but the, uh, the, uh, the school that I was at, they had a, uh, a TV studio for the students to produce the, the weekly news for the, uh, for the city that it was in. It was one of the suburbs outside of Houston. Um, so um, I got to learn, you know, a lot of, how things were uh, managed in a in a studio setting with the camera, you know, camera ops, the uh, the anchors, you know, reading the news from the teleprompter, the uh, the teledirector. The teledirector was a position that um, that was my favorite position because it was basically mixing. So a teledirector is, you know, you have all the you say you have four cameras and you have a screen showing where the four cameras are looking at. Um, the director behind you is telling you, okay, camera one, zoom in to, you know, the anchor at this point, and then get ready to cut to camera two, and then you cut. So like they're giving direction to to me as the teledirector. So it was basically mixing, but instead of mixing with music, it was mixing with with visuals, you know, transitioning from the shot to a different shot. So um, I really enjoyed that. And then the editing at the time, we weren't really using um, computer editing software to edit um, digitally yet. We were still doing um, analog e editing that just took forever, tape to tape, you know, making marks to uh, punch in and punch out. So that pretty much paralleled like um, DJing um, with mixing, you know, visuals versus audio. So last year um you know kind of came full circle where um i started to work on a project go back to video stuff when i decided to stop djing in um 2015 um i wanted to make a a short little documentary like a feature it, it was really just like a feature like a three minute blurb that i wanted to do on this photographer who originally took these uh, these photos of of dj screw in his home setting so it was really more i think this was 2004 that i that I put it together and 2015 would have been the 20 year anniversary of the photos. So I kind of just wanted to put together like a quick little feature on, on the photographer celebrating the photos and the anniversary of the photos. But, um, so I reached out to my, my homie from Houston, who's a videographer director, pitched the idea to him. He was about it. Um, I got in contact with Ben DeSoto, the photographer from Houston, and, uh, and he was about it. And uh, we scheduled an interview, went and met him. And, uh, and he just had, he just had like more, like he showed, he basically pulled out 
um, all these images that he was sitting on that kind of like had been forgotten, like a lost treasure. And um, my partner and I were just like, you know, maybe maybe we should step back and probably do something a little bit bigger than just focusing on the screw photos because we could kind of tell a whole story about him and really celebrate his work and his contribution, um, you know, with capturing historical things that took place in Houston from, from the music scene. Um, and then it just kind of blossomed. So what, you know, ideally was one idea kind of turned into something else. So we started recording over the, the course of, um, God, I want to say like four years. Um, and, um, and, and just following him and, and pulling out his archives and, and piecing the story together. And then we ended up applying for uh, a grant with the city of Houston and, um, and got a, a nice chunk of money to help um, pretty much complete it. We already had it pretty much done, but we were able to use a lot of the budget to, uh, to lock in um, licensing agreements with, with some of the audio that we wanted to use. But, um, but I couldn't have done it with like the help of all my, my friends that, you know, come from creative backgrounds. I really wanted to keep it um, Houston based, like everybody that was involved in the, in the project was from Houston. So I utilized my resources. Um, I utilized Gonzo, who I spoke to, spoke about earlier, um, to be a part of the, uh, of the premiere and have a, a, an attached art gallery, um, with the event. Um, I reached out to different musicians from Houston to help. Um, so it just, it kind of came together full circle, circle, and, and we got a um, really good response. And, um, I guess, it's my directorial debut um last year november 2019 um we premiered it in houston um there was another festival um houston cinema arts film festival that caught wind of it they they wanted to feature it um the houston latino film festival was um, at the premiere and they wanted to show it this year um so we were anticipating showing it um uh, you know we submitted for a lot of festivals this year but um Unfortunately, like with the pandemic, um, that kind of put a, a delay on things. Um, we were supposed mm -hmm. to show back in March in Houston, March here in Tampa. We got um, we got selected for the Tampa Gasparilla Film Festival, but that was put on on hold. Um, who else? We got selected for Philadelphia Film Festival. They showed it up there, but they they do they did more of a uh, an online um, film festival, you know, because there's still restrictions on on you know, having large events. And then recently we just got selected for a Minnesota film festival. So that's going to be coming up in uh, November. And I believe they're taking the same approach also where, where it'll be screened online, um, mm -hmm. you know, for, for a certain period, I guess the, the week of the, of the festival. So we're, you know, still waiting on, um, on instructions from that, but um, it was kind of a bummer, you know, cause we really wanted yeah. to, uh, <clears throat> to try to show it more this year. I don't know what's going to happen next year with, um, you know, the festivals that we did get selected for this year, they're planning on using the same winners for next year. But if not, I mean, it is what it is. Um, it, it had its run. And and then ideally, we'll probably just donate it to uh, to the African-American uh, library in Houston as a, uh, you know, just as a, as a piece of work. And then, you know, students can use it for, for educational purposes. We're not looking at licensing it out to um, to anybody or or you know, trying to make money off of it. Um, we really wanted to just kind of preserve it as a, as a piece of history for Houston. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you've already started to do some of what you set out to do because 
I'm not from Houston. I didn't know anything about Ben DeSoto before uh, seeing your project, you know, and I was on the Twitch uh, live premiere and everything like that. And oh, it, yeah. It dope. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. You did tune in. Yeah, man. Yeah, of course. Got to support my people, right? Yeah. So, but like just watching it, for one, I've seen, you know, a number of documentaries like most people, uh, but it was impressive to me, the quality of it, not saying I didn't think you were going to do quality work, but just seeing how much it emulated other documentaries in the quality, in the cuts. And then you did the voice, some voiceover work too, which was tripping yeah. me out. Uh, <laughs> and then just the rawness of the emotion that sometimes you caught, like without trying to give it away, you know what I'm saying? You, towards the end, yeah. you know, when, uh, when Ben was doing what he was doing and uh, it just felt like real authentic. And it felt like that you had an actual love for what you were doing, which I think came through. Uh, which to me is really the heart of most documentaries is that this person's not trying to exploit the situation. They're trying to show the situation. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so I think it was dope. But like I said, it was just crazy because that was when we went to LA. You know what I mean? That was, that oh, was one yeah. of the major reasons that we went out to LA was yeah. so you could finish up doing like some, I think the voice of work going in the studio and trying to finish some of that, that stuff up. Which yeah. It was a trip because what was that? That was like 2017. I think we went to LA, uh, right? Yeah. I think, I think you're right. 2007. Yeah. So the 2017. So because I mean, 2000. we ain't known each other that long. <laughs> My then, bad. 2017. Yeah, you good. <laughs> but like, so that, it's just a trip because I mean, you and I went from not knowing each other, right? Yeah. And like, uh, we met on New Year's Eve, 2016. Oh yeah. Damn. Because that was Gazelle and I's second date, which I finally got her to admit. By the way, she always tried to say that wasn't a date. I'm like, that was a date. <laughs> 2016, <laughs> New Year's Eve. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and then so, and then like four, four months, five months. What? No, it's five months four months anyway it doesn't matter uh, a few months later anyways we were going to la so you could go out there and work on your documentary and so we could kick it around like because you know gazelle's yeah. from la and i've never been right uh, so we could hang out out there and everything like that so it's just like a trip to watch it come to fruition you know two years yeah. later uh, in 2019 to see it actually come out and see you uh, put it out there uh, live on twitch doing the the uh, premiere and then you know getting picked up for these festivals and everything like that it's that kind of like dedication and passion for something that i respect and i think it is dope just watching that come full circle because we out in la you know where monir can't get blueberries on a creme brulee because they sent the pastry (laughs) chef home uh you know i mean uh yeah oh my god that dude was a trip i want to explain that story though this this is still the dumbest thing i've ever heard man they they set this kid up for failure we go to this (laughs) korean restaurant that's supposed to have like super good um desserts and let me be clear this is not a, a story based upon race our server was not korean nobody who was nah. working there was korean it was just a korean restaurant um and his wife now uh orders creme brulee and she's like hey can you put some berries on the creme brulee and he's like all right and he goes but and then he comes back and he says hey we can't put the berries on the creme brulee because the pastry chef has gone home <laughs> we're like yo what are you talking about bro just uh... put the goddamn berries on top what you right. mean? You, you nobody's baking anything. Creme brulee is already made. Just put the berries on yeah. top. <laughs> wow. And so, and then he couldn't pronounce tiramisu either, man. He or ter, now I can't pronounce it. I'm here trying to talk shit. Uh, he couldn't pronounce it's tiramisu. Just, so ter, yeah, kind of stuttered, right? Tiramisu. Because well, either I, it was either me or Gazelle that ordered it, and he came back to the table to tell us they didn't have it. But yeah. he obviously hadn't looked at the word before or thought about the word before he came to the table because he's like, uh, they don't have the t- uh, t- 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 um, t- uh, like, bro, what did you do it, man? Come on. Yeah. Uh, I think it was like his first day or something like that. I'm not sure. But I'm like, this is wild. It was either that or he was super stoned because his eyes looked like bloodshot. Like, 
Yo, he looked stoned out. Whether it was his first day or not, he was lit for sure. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But anyways, uh, sorry, I forgot the point of the story now. But yeah, LA, we were out in LA uh, <laughs> kicking it. And yeah, I did a yeah. little work um, to try to record some voiceovers. But um, that it, it ended up not working, you know, like we were kind of super rushed. We really needed to um, kind of dedicate time to um to kind of figure out that and it was it was still like a whole learning process of uh you know getting the narration correct um having it fit you know correctly with um with the editing that my partner was doing but my partner andrew i mean he he deserves like so much credit for the film um piecing it together with the editing with the filming um the transitions you know i was just kind of like on the sideline giving my input like what if we do it like this this is a little too short this needs to breathe more um mm-hmm. kind of just giving my insight but i think at the end of the day we we had good chemistry and and asked the right people for uh for feedback um wifey monir had a lot of good input to to help assist with things um did some help with the writing as well so um yeah man i mean I think it's a beautiful piece and I think we got really good uh, response from it. And hopefully, you know, people that, that slept on it or didn't get a chance to see it will kind of just see it, you know, and they'll just be here for the long shot. So you're trying to do more of that? You want to do some other, like, not specifically documentary, but let's say like filmmaking, because I know like you've talked about before, you respect the creative process and you always kind of seem to have your hand in at least one creative endeavor yeah. or another. Is that something you see yourself doing more of? Yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely have couple ideas that that I want to execute um but you know a lot of the planning process and people's schedules you know trying to get people on board but um but I mean it can happen you know if if you got the right people that are dedicated to it and can deliver um and kind of just you know see the the vision of the the ending product so I think this is kind of a good uh a good step for me that, you know, if people can see that I was a part of making a quality piece that, you know, if I'm trying to do something, it's going to be on the same level or, or better than, than what that was try to, you know, out top myself, um, with stuff, but I mean, it's very team driven, you know, like, um, I think, I think that kind of helped with the, with the success of it as well, that, you know, it's not all about, you know, me, me, me. Um, I think a lot of that, that attitude kind of helped has helped shape me and, and gotten to me to positions that, that I got to, um, because it was all about, you know, team, like, um, you know, kind of knowing when to uh, step in when it's time for me to, to lead, you know, the run, but at the same time being open and, and listening to people's feedback and letting people, um, that specialize in different things that I'm not a pro at letting them, you know, take full lead, giving them creative control, me just kind of planning my vision and, and what I think would, work best and how I see we utilize, you know, their talent, but still giving them the creative uh, control to kind of just see things blossom. Well, and, and you said you directed this one, right? That would you get yeah. that official director credit? Yeah. 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 So, I wore many hats, but yeah, director. Well, I'm yeah, director, producer, like all that type of stuff. But I, I think to me, directing and producing and those type of things, that's really what you're doing. You're facilitating. You're Correct. not necessarily saying I'm the expert of everything, right. but I can help bring all this together and I have a vision for how it should come together. And so, I mean, that's the role you're put into. And I think that feeds back to your your history that you were telling us about earlier from event planning and DJing and all those type of things. You always have to do that. You have to wear multiple hats and get the best out of everyone else, not right. try to be the best person for every job yourself. 
Absolutely. You know what I mean? So Absolutely. And I think, like I said, man, I look forward to, to seeing more of them for sure. I, I really, and I was just thinking this as a joke, but the more I thought about it, I'm like, this is legit. Like, this is a serious thing. I want somebody to do one on the Ebor City shoe liquor, man. I want to know what's oh, up yeah. with that dude. Yeah. I want to know that story. That would be a good story. Definitely. Is he still Have around? I mean, I haven't been to Ebor in forever, but I, I do remember seeing him in action. I, I, me too. I did as well. I, I'll never forget the, to the time I did, but I thought he was an urban legend until I, I saw him in real life. I'm like, yo, yeah. it's you. And But I don't know, man. He's one of those things that like when you're from an area, you kind of hear about it. Like nobody tells you about it before you go there. And so you right. don't really know if he's still out and about unless you hear a story. So you just have to hear about somebody. But this must be on a hard time for him, man. You can't be out here licking shoes with COVID-19 going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about now, but... um. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know the story about him, but I mean, he definitely was a was a Ebor staple. Staple, you know. Um, I mean, I think I overheard somebody mention that definitely he had some kind of, you know, mental mental health issues. If you're licking shoes, or if it's just entertainment, I mean, who knows? I mean, who knows what his story is? But I'm sure it's interesting. I mean, if yeah. if he's out there hustling like that, you know, no telling what kind of life that that he's been through, the ups and downs. I have to think, man, that it's a uh... It's some kind of sexual orientation or yeah. something. Like it has to be sexual because, again, the dude. So, again, for those who are listening and don't know what we're talking <laughs> about, there's a guy in Ebor City, Tampa, uh, who will just create a way to get you to lift up your foot and then he'll lick the bottom of your shoe. Mm. Like, when, when I met him, uh, he didn't get me, first of all. Let me let me start off that. He, he got one of my, my homeboys. We were standing in an elevator. It was me, my homeboy, and I think a girl was with us i don't remember but anyways uh and we're standing there and he asked my friend he's like yo those are nice shoes man uh you know what kind are they and he's like oh my shoe and he just picks up his shoe because he was just looking at it and as soon as he did the dude dove down like timed it perfectly licked the bottom of the shoe and right then the elevator got to the floor and i'm like and i literally said this out loud i'm like oh you're the ebor city shoe licker (laughs) (laughs) and the dude he just took off out the elevator and the craziest part to me man and again, I don't know what he looked like when you saw him, but the dude looked like Prince. He had like the little mm. mini curly fro and was, I, I don't know. And so now in my head, whenever I try to remember that moment, all I see is Prince wearing exactly what he wore in that episode of New Girl he was on. Oh, man, I got to look that up. <laughs> I'm telling you, it, it, again, he didn't look that much like Prince. He was just a kind of a light skinned dude with a little fro, which yeah. is the first thing that threw me off, man. I'm like, why did nobody mention this dude? Uh, was light skinned you know what I'm saying like nobody really said what he looked like yeah. but I did, certainly didn't think he was a light skinned dude running around you know yeah man it's been a minute so I, I'm, I gotta google him and see what pops up dude, I, if there isn't a webpage I need to create one man that's a blog that's waiting to happen where we can just collect <laughs> reported sightings of the Ebor City shoe liquor because that again man that's a story like he is again I thought he was an urban legend until I met him in real life and then I just want to know more. Like there's yeah. so much more to that story. Again, it's probably it, watch it be boring. Like the dude just likes to look shoes and that's it. And then like he go, he's an accountant or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's got some high end job who knows, man. But yeah, I mean, that's that, that definitely would be a good story. Interesting. Yeah. Cause like you said, man, there, there might be some mental health issues there going on only. I wonder if it's a matter of compulsion or what, because I have heard of him uh, again her, through rumors that he did, he has caught a couple beatings doing that. You know what I mean? Like people have been like, "Dude, what the fuck are you doing?" And they just take right. the crap out of him. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, but he's man, still out he here knows. doing it. Yeah, 
<laughs> Who knows? And again, not even the top of the shoe, bro. The bottom, the, the bottom. nasty, Ugh. the dirty part. Like he's really trying to get after it. It's, yeah, it's wild. That's gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, there, there's none of that that Only I've heard of here in Miami. It's wild. Only in Ebor. Yeah, because yeah. we got flying chickens and dudes licking shoes. Like I don't know what's going yeah. on in Ebor City, but if you're trying to have a good time or get a cigar or tattoo, yeah. go to Ebor City. I think they had Batman there too. Um, oh yeah, the Robin dude. I got a picture of him. Yeah. Um, there was another guy, the senator, that wore like a little. I think it's called a tutu. Um, oh yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, he I know was a staple. About. Yeah, Ebor is on another level. Yeah, when I moved down here, I was like, wow, this is this is pretty diverse. No, Ebor is wild, man. I love Ebor though because of that because. You're walking around and you see people who are going to the rave club, so they're wearing all kinds of crazy nonsense. You mm-hmm. got uh, what's it called now? It used to be called the Castle, I think. I think it might still yeah, be. That's the, the kind of goth goth style yeah. club that also has uh, some more um, people in all kinds of different lifestyles and different things like that that go in there. Yeah. Then you have uh, the actual gay clubs, like the, in the corner. They're all in that little corner there. Right. Then you have always there's one person out there holding a sign that says something to the effect that we're all going to hell uh, or whatever <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. And they and they always have like the loudspeaker and everything. Yes. Uh, yes. Every every weekend, and then just tons of cigar shops, tons of uh, uh, tattoo parlors as well, and everything, man. And it's always crazy because again, because there's so many, there's so much of a uh, kind of Cuban vibe to that area as well. There's right. always like. Uh, older Cuban dudes just hanging out, smoking cigars and stuff like that. It's just True. wild, man. Ybor City is an experience that I think you have to go to. But what's crazy to me is how many people, when I came to Tampa, they're like, yo, Ybor City's mad dangerous. I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah. Like a street over, maybe, or something like that. I mean, but again, coming from Dayton, Ohio, like it wasn't that dangerous. Yeah, there's a bunch of bright lights and tons of people. That yeah. doesn't scream danger to me. <laughs> I think it was probably worse off from what I hear, like, you know, during the crack era, like, you know, mid eighties yeah. up until mid nineties, maybe. But of course, like anything starts to clean up over time. Well, I think it's still, it's still not like the safest neighborhood ever, but it's mostly nah. a street or, or two away from the main strip. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But like people were saying like on the main strip, you might just be walking. Somebody's going to come out and stab you. And like, yeah, you know what nah. I'm saying? Like, I don't I think there's a lot that. of random stabbings going on, man. Everybody who I've heard of getting stabbed or shot in Ybor city was in a fight at a right. club or something like that and then they went outside like th- right. that happens everywhere that i've heard of there's nobody just walking around just stabbing people because you know i don't like that dude's face stab 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 you know right saying? right yeah but there had to be some kind of altercation or something yeah which is sad that that's how we rationalize it by the way <sighs> yeah which, i mean different people from different backgrounds that but yeah i'm like what that dude do he did something nobody just yeah. stabbing and shooting people Bulls nah. are expensive <laughs> yeah true that true that <laughs> especially now yeah man yeah. I need to go shooting. They got a place here that I drive past. Uh, we just drove past it the other day. Okay. Where they let you shoot a, a full auto machine gun. Yeah. And I, first of all, I'm not trying to do that. I've shot yeah. a rifle on burst. That third bullet. So when you shoot on burst, for anybody who's listening, don't know that you shoot three bullets, generally speaking. Mm. You can have different bursts, but most of them are in three. Uh, and that third bullet, man, didn't hit shit. Mm-hmm. By the time I got to that third bullet, my uh, the kickback had already taken me up so much that it wasn't going anywhere. I think I wow. got it on the the target one time when I was shooting on burst. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But all right, man, I'm gonna let you get up out of here. I know you got to go, but just want to say thank you for coming on here and chopping it up with me. Uh, yeah, definitely, man. I'm gonna link to the Ben DeSoto project, man, because like I said, people more people need to see that. I hope you get into more of those uh, 
those festivals. And I hope this pandemic doesn't throw all that project off too much, man. Cause I, like yeah. I said, that was dope. That was definitely a dope project to watch. And I'm not even like into photography like that or anything, but it was just a cool story. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, yeah, man. Uh, tell, tell the lady, we said, hello, we miss you guys. Can't wait to see you guys again in the flesh. You know, you guys come up here. We come down there. We can see each other in uh, real time. Absolutely, man. We got to get some on the books when people out here uh, ain't passing around them cooties. <laughs> yeah. And congrats to uh, LeBron, you know, Cleveland. Yeah, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Another, just a kid from Akron, right? You know. Yeah, man. <laughs> nah, they deserved it, man. I mean, he's he's done a lot. He's lot. He's done a lot of good this year, you know, just like outside of the NBA and really standing up for things. So I, I got to tip my hat off to him and AD for doing it for Kobe. You know, but I was pulling yeah. for the heat. You know, I like the underdog. Um, but yeah, it was good. It was a good match. Well, if you're if you're a Heat fan, I'm not I'm not saying you directly are, but anybody who's a Heat fan should feel really good about that. For one, because they weren't supposed to be there. Yeah, number absolutely. two, because that basically makes them look really good for somebody like Giannis, who's about to be a free agent. You know, That's if true. I'm Giannis and I'm looking at Chris Middleton, I'm like, yo, Jimmy Butler, a hell of a lot better than Chris Middleton. Wow. And no disrespect to Chris Middleton. Chris Middleton's a hooper. Yeah, but. If I'm Giannis, man, I'm looking, yo, he'd fit perfectly in You're Miami. Right. And then you got Pat Riley. You got the right system around you. And then, yeah. come on, you can't tell me that uh, Miami ain't better than um, well, Milwaukee. Ain't nobody trying to go in Milwaukee uh, December. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, man. So I, I think that's the good part for what happened there is that hopefully they'll be able to get another big dude or at least somebody at Jimmy Butler's level to help him yeah. out. They're only going to get better because Tyler Hero is 19 or oh something like God. that. Hero was a beast, man. Gosh. Yeah, man. Yeah. Him and Duncan Robinson, them boys can shoot. And then you got Bam Adebayo. And then I just think that's a really, really good team and a really good yeah. situation. So everybody in Miami should be mad happy because when Jimmy Absolutely. Butler went there, like, oh, he's not trying to win anymore. He don't want to play. And they take out Milwaukee. They take out Boston. They take out yeah. all those major teams. So Yeah, it was great. It was a great season. Yeah, hats off to the Heat, man, because I was rooting for y'all. Man, I, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't. I'm biased. I'm a, I'm a LeBron fan. I wanted LeBron to get his another ring. Uh, and I'm hoping that it can go on, man. But that dude, that's wild, man. That dude's about to be 36. Yeah. He's about to be 36 in December, and he's still out there hooping like that. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, how old was uh, Vince Carter when he retired? Was he 40? 41? Yeah. 41, I think. Something like that. But but Vince Carter, you have to remember, like, first of all, never got to LeBron's level. Nah. Very good player. But nah. Never got to LeBron's level. And then by the time he was, like, 35, 36, he's basically a mentor on the team. And then coming in, hitting a couple threes, maybe do one, like, rim grazer dunk, you know what yeah. I'm saying, before his knees out or anything like that so it's just crazy to me that lebron's performing at that level the only other dude that you really have uh kind of a similar was kareem abdul jabbar who's still mm-hmm. putting up 20 something when he was like 35 36 or something like that yeah yeah That's it'll be interesting to see what happens but yeah bron bron yeah big up hey hey what you think about your boys though about what's up with h-town man they were a disappointment let us down you know it happens but i don't know man i'm i'm I think uh, they they did fire the coach, if I'm correct, or he did decide not to. Mutual, I think. Uh, I think it was mutual decision to move. Okay, on. so yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. There was a rumor a while back about uh, Harden thinking about going to Philly, but I was like, oh man, I don't know, I don't know if he would break up the the duo yet with him and Westbrook. I don't know, I don't know what they have planned for, but we'll see. I don't know. You got any? Uh, you got any idea on who they're gonna pick up as coach, though? Man, I haven't even been keeping up. Yeah, honestly. So I'll just have to keep an eye out. But yeah, no clue as of now. Yeah. 
All right, well, we'll have to get back on here one, once they do announce a coach, and we'll maybe plan out the whole season and see how it goes. But Word up. all right, boss, man, I appreciate you chopping it up with me again, like I said, so I'll, I'll holler at you later. Okay, man. Take care. Thanks for checking out today's episode of Starting Nowhere. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and leave us a comment to let us know what you thought.